You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening. Thanks very much for joining us. A new report shows $10 per day childcare is transforming lives, particularly for single mothers, but many are still missing out. As Aaron MacArthur reports, there's no shortage of issues preventing those who most need it from getting affordable childcare. Affordable, available daycare can be critical for everyone who needs it. For people struggling to make ends meet, access can be life-changing. But systemic barriers mean those who need it the most, often the least likely to find it. Those marginalized families who are low income and have multiple barriers, we found it very, very hard to find them within the centres. A new study released by the Centre for Family Equity highlights the positive link between access to $10 a day childcare and improved quality of life. Everything from economic factors to health and well-being. We had single mothers transitioning off income assistance. They felt that they became calmer, happier, uh, better parents. So in so many ways, their stress was reduced, their economic realities uh, were improved. But while the opportunity and benefits are obvious, the BC government has been slow to deliver all of the spaces promised. There are just more than 13,000 $10 a day spaces currently in BC and the government has plans to invest in another 2400 by spring next year. In a statement, the minister says there's also cost reduction programs in place for families across B.C. Shine and they shine. But the Centre for Family Equity says the province needs to fully fund up to 50,000 childcare spaces and prioritize low-income families for those new spots. There is no reason in the world why, as part of a universal program, they couldn't say that 25 or 30 percent of the spots in this next rollout will be allocated to a particular group. Judging by wait lists at both the $10 a day facilities and full cost centers, the need for childcare has never been greater. Estimates suggest there are three times as many kids needing care as there are spots available. Funding those spaces will require both federal and provincial money. Aaron MacArthur, Global News. More tonight on the tenants forced to leave their new Westminster apartment building just before Christmas. On Friday, the city told us the building is too unsafe to live in and its owners have had plenty of notice. But as Grace Key reports, most of the nearly dozen people who live there say there's no place for them to go. That's not fair. We didn't do anything. It's all the landlords doing. All of it. These new Westminster residents are refusing to leave their homes after the city issued an emergency evacuation order on Friday. We don't have extra money to do this, right? We don't have extra money for a hotel room or a moving truck or to get the help to move, right? We live check to check. I have no place to go and we are given three days to vacate the building. Like three days is not enough to pack our stuff and actually find a place to live. We got um, a letter stating that we were um, that rooms were available for us at the Russell building and we went in over and spoke to them and there's no rooms for us. According to the city, the building at 325 Agnes has a history of neglect. The landlord's business license was revoked in July 2022 and fines have totaled tens of thousands of dollars. A BC assessment report shows the property is owned by United Revenue Properties. 11 people were living here, about half a dozen or so are refusing to leave. Right now we are trying to find uh, other alternate housing for the folks. Uh, many people have relocated from the building. 
Um, until we can get uh, the folks who are there now relocated, we're going to have a 24-hour fire watch on the building to make sure that the building remains safe. The mayor says this has been an ongoing issue and various agencies have been working with the residents. There were some earlier residents in that building who did decide to move out and found alternative uh, accommodations, but then some other people ended up coming in and moving into the building in um, probably not a legal way. So uh, at some point we had to figure out a way to, um, to secure the building so that more people couldn't continue to move in. And it's unbelievable that they would do this to us at Christmas, you know, and like it will kill my mom being out in the cold. The tenants were supposed to leave on Friday but were given an extension until Monday. The building still has water, power and heat. The residents say they will stay here until they find a new home. Grace Key, Global News. And according to a new survey, one in five Canadians and nearly half of single parents in this country are struggling to cover basic needs. Our Keith Baldry joins us with more. Keith, money is getting really tight for so many people right now. Exactly. And again, Salvation Army, which has a high profile at Christmas time, back in October, surveyed more than 1,500 Canadians with the help of the Angus Reid Institute form. And the results are pretty bleak in terms of where people stand on personal finances. Take a look at this. 25% fear their income can't cover basic costs. Uh, that number actually rises to 40% for single parent homes. 21% report skipping or reducing meals because of grocery prices. And 60% are extremely concerned over the ongoing rising cost of living and inflation. Here's Gina Haggett of the Salvation Army. The report that we have finds that British Columbians are hoping to see financial pressures ease somewhat over the next six months, but they're still expecting food and insecurity and, and limited financial resources and housing and health issues to persist. So and as a result, um, you know, it's our goal to sustain the levels that we can help within the Salvation Army. So here's another disturbing statistic. 43% of the people who attended food banks in last year attended for the very first time. So food banks are at a crisis time right now in many areas of the province. People are encouraged to donate to them. Some good news, though. Economists are predicting or projecting a decline in inflation down to 2% over the next year or so. And don't look for any more interest rate hikes. Instead, look for some rate cuts in the new year. A lot of people will be happy about that if indeed it starts to happen. Thanks, Keith. Yeah. Now, friends and family of a B.C. woman found murdered in Mexico last week say they have no idea why anyone would want to harm her. Valerie Vardabasso spent much of the last 10 years in a town on the Gulf of California. And as Catherine Urquhart reports, those close to her are now demanding answers. 58-year-old Valerie Vardabasso was popular and much loved. She was the most warm person, like an earth angel. I, I knew her for 45 years. We went to school together and she was an outstanding human being. For the past decade, the Canadian has been house-sitting near Puerto Penasco. On Thursday, neighbours noticed her car lights were on and keys were in the ignition. Then they discovered her patio doors had been forced open. Valerie's body was found in the bathroom. They found uh, her lifeless body. Uh, her hands were bound and her feet were bound and she was gagged uh, in the shower. Valerie's son says he was close to his mother and believes her killing may have been a crime of passion. I got some information last night that uh, she was likely being stalked again and it may have been uh, 
someone that she knew in the, in the neighborhood. The woman's loved ones say they're desperate to know what happened to Valerie and why. I'm afraid that it's going to go cold and the perpetrator will never be found. Catherine Urquhart, Global News. Police near Kamloops are investigating after a man and his dog were both found dead this weekend. The man's green Ford Explorer was found near the bodies on Saturday afternoon near Inks Lake, about 20 kilometers southwest of the city. He was last seen leaving his Kamloops home with the dog at 2 p.m. on Friday. The B.C. coroner is also investigating. Anyone with information is asked to call to Kamloops Rural RCMP Detachment. And Kamloops RCMP have arrested a man and woman after an incident that's believed to have started in Vernon. Police were called when a truck was spotted driving dangerously along Highway 97. Multiple police resources, including an RCMP plane, were dispatched before the truck was found burning in the busy parking lot at the Sahali Mall in Kamloops. The truck is believed to have been stolen. Two suspects were arrested, both of them known to police. The Surrey School Board has run into a surprising roadblock in its bid to bring more schools and infrastructure to the city. That's right. For the first time, Surrey Council has rejected the school site's proposal, citing the NDP's new housing legislation. But as Janet Brown reports, the school board says any delay will set the district back. It's, this is unprecedented not to be approved. Surrey Council has unanimously rejected the Surrey School District's school sites proposal, an annual enrollment projection needed for provincial funding for capital projects, leaving the school district in limbo. This has set the board back for the 24-25 capital funding that we need, and we need that as soon as possible so that we can start planning for our future for the students. Larson says there are 3,000 more students projected for next September and almost a dozen more schools are needed. What we need now is 10 sites. We have to acquire them somewhere. We need around 16 additions and um, hopefully we get it. We get it soon. We get approval for that. The projections use municipal data based on projected new housing units to estimate future enrollment. We must look at this in a really robust way in our city. Surrey Mayor Brenda Locke says the projections were arrived at before new provincial housing legislation was brought in to increase density on single-family lots and around transit hubs. It is challenging for us and challenging for the school district to come up with numbers that make sense. But we must, and we must go back to the drawing board. The Surrey Teachers Association has waded into this with a statement saying this revelation is indeed surprising. Our hope is that the current situation is not driven by political motives. We anticipate swift and decisive resolutions from our mayor and government. We're not getting the formula right. Councillor Linda Annis says the way of projecting student enrollment numbers needs to change. Each and every year, we seem to always be under forecasting the number of new students that are hitting the schools of Surrey, hence the almost 400 portables. The Education Ministry says it will be appointing a facilitator to resolve the issue, but says right now it is too soon to determine a timeline for this process. Janet Brown, Global News. BC Ferries is facing more rough waters to close out what's been a tumultuous year. Ferries worker, Ferry Workers Union is complaining that the company has been undermining the bargaining process and is demanding more than $2 million in compensation. Richard Zussman has the details. 
It's a labor dispute with these workers caught in the middle. As BC Ferries prepares for the holiday season, there's little good cheer being spread between the company and the ferries union. There's a few things that have come to a head, unfortunately, around the same time, which uh, has created some tension. The union lodging a lengthy complaint to the BC Labor Relations Board, asking for $2.1 million in damages. The written complaint in part reads, the employer misrepresented the negotiations that occurred between the parties and cast the union as callous and uninterested in its members' interests, stoking anger, fear and frustration. And the employer was fully aware of the strain and friction between the union and its members, brought on by the substantial drop in their standard of living and has only sought to ignite this tinderbox of discontent. We certainly don't take uh, filing an unfair labor practice lightly and it wasn't something uh, that we wanted to do or something that we plan on doing. It is a result directly of the uh, communication that BC Ferries did directly to our members and the impacts that's had. The union accusing the company of negotiating directly with some employees where BC Ferries sees the conversation as an integral part of its work. 170. The conversations that we've had have all been within the bounds of what we're allowed to based on the protocol agreement we have. And all we're doing is what we should have been doing all along, which is talking to people about something that matters deeply to them, and that's obviously their paycheck. BC Ferries workers are worried their wages are falling behind cost of living increases, while the province is concerned around worker morale. An arbitrator will ultimately decide on the new deal, and that decision's been delayed until February because of an illness to someone on the arbitration team. And we are expecting that an arbitrator will rule in the new year and they will deliver an increase in compensation, which I think is rightly deserved. The increases are expected to be in the range of the province's public sector unions. And the opposition says public spats like this only strain public confidence. It needs to be a dependable service. It hasn't been a dependable service for quite some time. It's unclear when the Labour Relations Board may rule and what impact all of this continues to have on these workers. Richard Zussman, Global News, Victoria. You could soon have a lot fewer options to eat out. You know, I think this has been probably the lowest point that I've ever seen in the industry. The bitter taste of growing pressure on the restaurant industry and how many might not survive. That's next on the News Hour. It was the, the most fun in 22 hours that I've ever had. 20 years after Elf hit movie screens, reminiscing with the local actors and crew that will never forget it. Later. We got the police called on us yesterday because our farm threw an epic party. Plus, local farmers team up to offer free food. The beautiful thought behind Ugly Potato Day and how it's bigger than ever before a little later. Right now, though, the restaurant industry continues to suffer through a post-pandemic lull with social media filling up with posts about more eateries shutting down. And as Angela Jung reports, restaurants face what amounts to be a culinary catch-22 as they try to stay afloat. Catch 122 serves up French-inspired dishes, but it doesn't come cheap. Cost is very expensive, you know, the inflation and everything. So it is slowing down this year. The bistro was located in Gastown for the past decade, but decided to move to Lower Lonsdale after the pandemic. But things still have not bounced back. Tammy Sue says she doesn't want to raise prices, 
but needs to cover costs. We have to increase a little bit, but not too much. And we want we don't want to sacrifice the, the quality of our product. You know, I think this has been probably the lowest point that I've ever seen in the industry. It's just it's just a really bad situation. Some restaurants have been forced to shut down. More announcing closures by the end of the year when their leases are up. I feel their pain because it's happening to like all of us. Restaurants Canada found four in 10 businesses are expecting lower profit margins than in 2022. And bankruptcies have soared by 89% in the first five months of the year compared to the same time last year. The problem is we're just carrying over so much of the, of the baggage from the pandemic where the industry had to borrow money to stay alive during the pandemic and then it borrowed more money. One month from now, the SIBA loan repayment is due in order to secure the forgivable portion. Tostenson hopes the feds will extend the deadline again or else even more restaurants will close their doors, wiping out 10% of the industry. So by the time that people realize they can't pay their SIBA loans and they can't get financing for the banks because they've probably already maxed out all their credit lines, I think you'll see most of the damage happening in early 2024. Back at Catch 122, Sue is also worried about paying back the SIBA loan, but she's determined to make it work in the new neighborhood. Personally, we have to do more. Um, just some creative juggling with <laughs> finance. Angela Jung, Global News. Coming up, the latest on a deadly shooting in Abbotsford and why the Independent Investigations Office is now involved. Also ahead, spectacular video of a volcanic eruption. The lava fountain everyone feared would happen. BC's independent police watchdog is investigating after a deadly officer-involved shooting in Abbotsford. No officers were injured, and as Emily Lazatin reports, there are few details about what led up to the altercation. The incident happened here in an industrial area of Abbotsford in front of Saputo Dairy. BC's police watchdog says officers were called to reports of a suicidal man. Sunday night around 10 p.m., Abbotsford police officers are seen blocking off the area near the 1700 block of Riverside Road. On the sidewalk, it appears there's a body underneath a yellow sheet. Medical gloves and equipment on the ground, signs first responders tried to save the man's life. The Independent Investigations Office says when officers responded, some sort of altercation occurred and police shot the man. He died at the scene. The IIO has now taken over the investigation and we asked if the man threatened police in any way. What happened uh, between this individual and the police? What was it um, that uh, would have given police the uh, authority or justification to use uh, lethal force. And at the end of the day, we need to determine whether or not the application of lethal force against this individual was reasonable, proportionate and necessary. Early Monday, investigators were still on scene collecting evidence. A fire truck eventually rolled through the area and hosed down the sidewalk and the road was reopened to traffic. No word yet on the identity of the victim. The IIO will now determine if police action or inaction played a role in the man's death. Emily Lazatin, Global News. A Coquitlam man is facing a long list of charges after a year-long investigation into a large-scale Canada-wide drug trafficking operation based here in B.C. 
Officers with the Combined Forces Special Enforcement Unit worked with police in Manitoba and executed four search warrants in the Lower Mainland in August of 2022. Those raids turned up drugs, cash, cryptocurrency and weapons. 34-year-old Alexander Dimitrios Fasogianos is facing several drug and weapons charges and is due in court in January. And the same unit uncovered another alleged drug trafficking operation, resulting in a large seizure of drugs, firearms and cash in the Lower Mainland. The CFSEU carried out a search earlier this year on residences in Langley, Maple Ridge and Abbotsford. During the operation, a handgun, two automatic rifles, prohibited ammunition magazines and around $26,000 was seized, as well as small amounts of crack cocaine, fentanyl and drug paraphernalia. Two 22-year-old men are now facing charges. A poorly stored propane tank is being blamed for an explosion in Victoria that sent one man to hospital. The occupant of this car suffered burns to his face, hands and ankles. His dog escaped unharmed. It happened at Pandora and Chambers Streets on Sunday afternoon. Victoria Fire Department says this is a good reminder that you should take proper care when using propane in confined spaces. And BC's emergency call takers are reminding us that an inflatable Grinch missing from your front lawn is not considered an emergency. Ecom says average wait times for non-emergency calls have dropped from 12 to 4 minutes over the past year, due in part because of a new dedicated non-emergency team. In order to free up 911 operators for critical cases, Ecom has compiled a list of situations where you should contact a non-emergency line or file a report online. And those include charity scams, missing vehicles, noisy parties, and bad weather road conditions. Ecom operates dispatch services for more than 70 police and fire departments across the province. Up ahead, saving lives with a swab. The Okanagan initiative to get more stem cell donors. And you won't believe just how simple it is. Also, ambitious targets to get you to drive a zero-emission vehicle, with some questioning whether it's realistic. It's an ambitious target. All new cars in Canada will have to be zero emissions by 2035. According to a senior government source speaking with Reuters, Ottawa will unveil new regulations this week. The new rules would help ensure supply is available to the Canadian market and reduce wait times to get an electric vehicle. Those vehicles, which include battery electric, plug-in and hydrogen models, are expected to represent 20% of all new car sales by 2026, 60% by 2030 and 100% by 2035. Industry experts say hitting the target will be a major challenge. The biggest challenge in this transition to electrification is ensuring that we actually have the clean, reliable and affordable electricity available to power an increasingly electric vehicle fleet. Under the government's projections, we're talking about 12.5 million electric vehicles on the road by 2035. That's going to take more electricity generation and millions of chargers across Canada to allow Canadians to keep their vehicles charged up. So far, B.C. and Quebec already have the same regulated sales targets. In Health Matters tonight, after beating cancer thanks to a successful stem cell transplant, one Kelowna nurse is encouraging others to step up and register as a potential donor. 
As Jaden Wozni reports, more than 80 diseases and disorders can be treated with a stem cell transplant, and it takes less than five minutes to sign up. As a registered nurse in the ER department at Kelowna General Hospital, Joel Coet is used to saving lives. But after his life was saved thanks to a stem cell donor, he's encouraging others to register through a stem cell swabbing event. While they can register as a potential donor, not everyone who registers will actually have a match. Uh, it's a simple four swab kit. You could also register on blood.ca forward slash Joel. Coet was diagnosed with acute myeloid leukemia back in April of 2018 and was told the only cure was through a stem cell transplant. And while finding a donor isn't always a possibility, he was one of the lucky ones finding a donor in just five months. And he recently went to Germany to meet the man who saved his life. It's okay. Thank you so much. Thank you. You're welcome. It's okay. It's okay. I wouldn't be here had he not donated his stem cells. You know, it saved my life. And I want to help others. In the registry in Canada, we're always looking for more people. And some people just don't find a match. So the more we have registered, the more likely we can save more lives. A stem cell transplant replaces the patient's unhealthy stem cells with a matching donor's healthy stem cells, and it only takes about five minutes to register. I just did the stem cell swabs. Uh, it was really easy, and it's really good to know that you're making a difference in someone's life. Over 80 diseases and disorders can be treated with a stem cell transplant, including leukemia, lymphoma, and other blood cancers. I feel like as a nurse, we always want to be able to, to care for people, whether they're your friends or you're not. And if it's just something little that I can do that takes no time at all, and then at some point, if it does help someone down the road, then yeah. Coet added that he'd like to make this an annual event to try and save as many lives as possible. Jaden Wozni, Global News, Kelowna. Canada Blood Services says... The most eligible people are between 17 and 35. So if you're between oh. 17 and 35, go ahead and sign up. We just missed it. Just. Just like. It was yeah, so, close. so close. So close. Just ahead, free food. It's really heartbreaking how many people are living paycheck to paycheck. How the response to Ugly Potato Day was more than they bargained for this year. And volcanologists knew it would happen eventually, the latest on that spectacular Icelandic eruption. The public's preference for perfect-looking produce meant a big giveaway in Surrey over the weekend. Ugly Potato Day saw crowds of people who were happy to prevent thousands of pounds of perfectly good vegetables from being thrown away. Paul Johnson reports. Yes, lots of beets. When future archaeologists look back on our times, they may be puzzled by this quirk in our local food economy. We're on a farm right now. It's been in the family for 103 years. Carrying on the family potato dynasty, Tyler Heppel's operation is one of BC's top potato producers. Reds, russets, they've got them all. And like any business, success means paying close attention to customer taste. Here in North America, we have some of the strictest cosmetic standards in, in the grocery stores. Potatoes like this are really hard to sell. That this, is, this would be considered an ugly potato because it's a small russet. Perfectly nutritious and delicious, but choosy suburban households have spoken. Too ugly for their dinner plates. So every year, thousands of pounds of potatoes get sent for cow feed. 
wanting to do something better, the Heppels came up with Ugly Potato Day. We had about 35,000 pounds of potatoes, about 20,000 pounds of carrots, 2,000 pounds of beets, and 5,000 pounds of squash. So many turned out at their Surrey Farm Sunday that the police had to come out and help manage traffic, with people loading up on one of the best bargains around, free locally grown produce. We really encouraged anyone that was uh, feeling the food insecurity to come show up and then anyone who just wanted to be a part of the event, they could come and we really encouraged them to leave a donation for the local food banks. So Ugly Potato Day appears to confirm both our affluence and our poverty. Tons of food no one will buy, but plenty of apparent need for something that's free. Yeah, right there, thank you. In Surrey, Paul Johnson, Global News. <laughs> it, is there such a thing as a beautiful, attractive potato? It's it's not the handsomest of the of the of veggies, is it? No, no. it is it. tasty though. Yeah, it sure is. In mashed form, especially. Thank you so much to the farmers who pulled that off on the weekend. Uh, all right. King tides are not necessarily meteorological phenomenon, but the weather sure can impact whether we feel them. Christy's got the details now. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It can exasperate the situation. So we have a very high tide expected tomorrow, and there is a potential for some coastal minor coastal flooding in low-lying areas, usual suspects like sort of uh, Spanish Banks area. So if you're going for a walk late tomorrow morning, we're expecting a high tide at 11.16 a.m., so heads up. Certainly a possibility all around the lower mainland. Now, I wanted to show you this. Looking back at the days that we've had so far in December, the, uh, the daytime high has been above average average for most of the days other than two. And that trend is expected to continue. So anyone hoping for a white Christmas in Metro Vancouver, it's really not looking very likely. It has a potential for changing, but it's not looking very likely. And, you know, we can't sort of attribute one specific thing to El Nino when we're looking at uh, um, the weather. But what we can look at is sort of the trend. And the trend throughout December is really looking very El Nino-like and looks to be the case. Now, we may see a bit of a draw. draw in the temperature to near seasonal values over the weekend, but then we climb back out of it. And that's the case for those of you in the interior. Daytime average high would be minus two in Kelowna, and we're way above that. And we are expecting mild southwest flow yet again tomorrow. So periods of rain on and off freezing levels are going to climb. We're not expecting much snow for the mountain passes, and that means that mostly we're looking at rain for the mountain passes. We do have a risk of freezing rain for the Coquihalla, the Connector, and Allison Pass tonight into tomorrow morning, but generally we're looking at just wet weather. Uh, any flakes that you see in these icons really would just be a wet snow early in the morning. Otherwise, you're looking at rainfall. And for our region, certainly periods of rain is expected. A little drier, though, on Wednesday and Thursday. It's only a 40% chance of showers. Don't forget, we change over uh, to uh, winter officially on Thursday. That means the days get longer and longer, which I love. Looking at our weekend, though, it looks like we could catch a bit of sunshine on Saturday. Tonight, Central Windows Weather Window coming to you from Creston. Brian, I shared this with everyone. I love the shot of these uh, sort of ultra-cumulus clouds, but also we very seldom get photos from Creston. So thanks and hi to everyone in Creston. Brian's on the board. Thanks very much, Christy, and thanks, Brian. Well, after weeks of intense earthquake activity, a volcano in Iceland has roared to life in, in a spectacular explosion. Mm -hmm. Helicopter crews surveying the eruption say the volcanic rift appears to be about three kilometers long. Iceland's major international airport, which is nearby, is still open, but it is dealing with many delays. 
As the seismic activity intensified over the past few weeks, more than 4,000 residents of a nearby town were evacuated from their homes. This is the fourth volcanic eruption in the area in just the past three years. Wow. It's a good show. It is. It's spectacular to watch. It's like that one in Vegas you were saying. It was like. Oh, the, it looks like the Bellagio the water Bellagio fountain, fountain, except it's fire. That's what the Mirage used to have. Remember, yeah. they used to have the fake volcano out in front of it. Oh, that I mean, I think smelled like pina colada. <laughs> I think. It sounds like Vegas. Yeah, you can kind of get everything and see everything in Vegas. That's so. true. All right, what do you have um, for us, Squire? Okay, so former BC Lions quarterback Nathan Rourke is now working for Bill Belichick. Rourke swarmed, stays on his feet somehow, will have a chance to get it away, and he completes it for a touchdown. He was put on waivers by Jacksonville, picked up by the Patriots, and maybe they'll give Rourke a chance to play before the end of the year because they haven't been very good. Also coming up tonight... The cotton-headed ninny muggins. 20 years after its release, revisiting the Will Ferrell Christmas classic Elf and the movie's deep connection to Vancouver. Squire set and ready to roar. Well, you know what? I was thinking about this. Uh, back in October when the Canucks were winning all those games early, everybody was saying, wow, they're winning. Now if they lose, it's the other way. Wow, they're <laughs> losing. But they haven't been losing lately. They're 5-0-1 in their last six. Tomorrow, they'll be in Nashville for another game on this four-game road trip, which is uh, the one that happens just before the Christmas break. And today, Thatcher Demko was one of the stars of the week. He now leads the NHL with 16 wins in the net. Okay, so Nathan Rourke is no longer a Jacksonville Jaguar. He's now a member of the New England Patriots. He was grabbed off waivers from the Jags, which I think is a huge benefit to Rourke because... He was picked up on waivers. That means New England has to put him on their main roster, which means since New England is so bad, this is not a knock on Rourke, but they're so bad, he might get a chance to play in one of their final three regular season games. Now, he was the third string guy in Jacksonville. He played in the preseason and played pretty well, but has spent most of the regular season on their practice roster. They have Trevor Lawrence. He's not going to displace him. But as we said with the Patriots, their quarterbacks have struggled this year, and they have to dress Rourke, so why not? Give him some playing time, and let's see what he's got. Maybe he'll get in. Well, it's not just the BC Lions who are going to play a game on Vancouver Island next year. The Vancouver Whitecaps will play Tigre of Mexico as part of the Champions Cup tournament. It'll be at Starlight Stadium in Langford on February 7th. It's a two-game total goal series, so that'll be the Whitecaps' home game. The uh, Caps cannot play at their usual home, BC Place, because they have a home and garden show going on. You can't play soccer around homes and gardens. Uh, Vancouver played Tigre as part of the League's Cup in August. That game was at BC Place, and Tigre won it on penalty kicks. They are one of the best teams in Mexico, so it will be a good game over at Starlight. Now, the other pro soccer team in the Lower Mainland is Vancouver FC of the Canadian Premier League. They finished their first season in October. They finished seventh out of eight teams, but not every expansion team can have a Vegas Golden Knights type of inaugural campaign. It does take time to build a successful franchise. Heading into its inaugural Canadian Premier League season, Vancouver FC had tempered expectations. I think this year was about um, getting ourselves established in the market, established in this new venue, what that looked like. Just as the foundation of the club was being built, so too was its venue. A 6,500-seat outdoor stadium at the Langley Event Centre. 
a new home for the new team of staff, players and coaches. I've never been involved in a club that had no history. Uh, most of the clubs I've been involved with have 50 plus year history, leagues that uh, have a lot of followings. So for me it was a very interesting to project to uh, sometimes be in a stadium with, uh, with a handful of people in the stadium. You want to be playing in front of a sold-out crowd every week, um, but we also know that we're a first-year team and we need to build trust within the community, right? People like supporting winning teams. They like supporting teams that play exciting football. Entertaining wins is exactly what Vancouver FC provided down the stretch, winning four of their last six games to finish the season as the hottest team in the CPL. Another victory in its first season was discovering local young talent, such as North Vancouver's James Cameron and TJ Tahid from Maple Ridge, who became the youngest player to sign a CPL contract. We picked him up as a 15-year-old kid, signed him. He was in the U-17. He started every game for the U-17 national team uh, at the end of the season. And the story of James Cameron and TJ, uh, th those two stories are going to inspire many, many young people. Uh, they were just youth players. that Nobody knew about them. The CPL requires each team to reach 2,000 U21 minutes in a season. Vancouver FC had more than any other club, logging 5,203 minutes. When you look around the world, leaders of, of player development, you know, use teams like Ajax, Bruce Dortmund, I think that's part of the identity why, why fans want to support the club, is looking at those, those young future superstars supporting them, watching them move on, following their career, you know, and, and once that, that player is a Vancouver FC player, they're a VFC player for life. Seahawks hosting Philadelphia Monday Night Football. Jalen Hurts, the Eagles quarterback, was so sick with the flu, they made him fly to Seattle on a separate plane so he wouldn't infect anybody else. But there he is running on the very first play of the game. Seahawks aren't afraid of him. They're tackling him. They're getting close. Although he does get in the end zone here, to give Philadelphia a 7-3 lead at half to make that a 7-0 lead at that point. Now it's 10-3 Philadelphia at halftime. Geno Smith not playing quarterback tonight. Drew Locke is. Should he be playing if he's that sick? Apparently he's not that sick anymore, I but guess. Or maybe they're thinking of that. If he's that sick and Seattle knows it, they may not want to tackle him. <laughs> I remember Michael Jordan playing very yeah, sick the one, two, game, the, famous the flu game, the flu game, and he scored 50 or something that night. So. All right, thanks, Squire. It can be done. It can be done. All right, up next, how the holiday classic Elf is the Christmas gift that just keeps on giving for the locals who worked on it. Jordan Armstrong standing by in the newsroom with a look ahead to Global News at 11. Jordan? Sophie, the mild weather we're having is not great news for the ski hills, but it's fantastic for the golf courses. In Kelowna, Shadow Ridge Golf Club has reopened and business is pretty good. In fact, they had a record number of players on the course yesterday. We'll tell you how many at 11 and what their plan is for staying open. Plus, the CPKC holiday train is making stops in Port Moody and Port Coquitlam tonight. And we'll have video of that at 11 as well. Sophie? You are our train reporter. <laughs> I can't <laughs> seem to avoid it. Thanks, Jordan. All right, the holiday train always rolls in with the movie Elf on board. Uh, it's become this iconic Christmas movie, and a lot of it was filmed here, Squire. I was told if you do a percentage, about 75% of that movie was filmed in the Lower Mainland. So a lot of people in the movie industry, veterans who've been around a while, had something to do with it, and we talked to a few of them to get their thoughts on being part of a Christmas classic. 
20 years after it came out, Elf has earned the coveted title of Christmas classic. The story of Buddy, who travels from the North Pole to New York City to meet his real father and family. But while some of the movie was filmed in New York, the real Christmas magic was provided by the Lower Mainland because our places and our people are all over this movie. Most of it was interiors, uh, like the Hudson Bay's company was part of our department store. You know, we did a few things outside, uh, like Jovi's apartment when he goes to her apartment in Chinatown that was on Pender Street. The form at the P&E was where the North Pole set was and Riverview in Coquitlam was used for exteriors and interiors, like the apartment where Will Ferrell had to do this, a scene that required the skills of Tony Lazarowicz. Uh, what we do is we take the bottle, we screw that onto here, uh, we put this in our mouth, we hide this part down the side of my body and uh, basically we force air into the system and we have two lines that allow the liquid to get out of the bottle. But that's not all Tony and his team had to make. The elevator panel in the Empire State Building. <gasps> Santa sleigh. Yes, they made the sleighs too. And most importantly, the clausometer. It's quite amazing what my guys built here because you know, it was a lot of things that were found objects. So to build this, uh, it, it took, I'm going to say at least a month to build two of them. And it wasn't just locals off camera who helped make this movie great. One local actor got more screen time than he thought he would. Uh, my agent phones me up and he goes, listen, Mark, um, they're doing this movie in town as Will Ferrell, and they want you to do one line. So how'd you get here? Work release. And uh, then all of a sudden they decided they wanted to play. You go, okay, you do this and you do that. And, and then we're in the mail um, cart. I'm going, how did this all parlay from like work release? You know, I, I just try to go to the flow. You Good, know? go with the flow. Yeah. And I'm really uh, proud of uh, how well the movie's done. You know, uh, it's, it's really a, a piece of film history. A little bit, you know? And it's nice. It's a nice movie. And you're in it. And I'm, I'm a nice guy. You know, I, I don't kill anybody. I don't get killed. It's all good. You know, I mean, I'm real happy. <laughs> apparently, a lot of Mark's movies, bad things happen. <laughs> yeah, apparently so. But he got tickled by Will Ferrell he in did, that one. Yeah, so that's pretty which good. is also ad-libbed. <laughs> Thanks for watching, everyone. Good night. Good night, all.